Welcome to Brand and Deliver, the podcast dedicated to great professional services marketing. In each episode, we're joined by marketing leaders from across professional services firms as we explore how they create strategies designed to deliver genuine value. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Professor Joe Amani. I'm sure many of our listeners will already be familiar with Professor Joe and his work, but for those who are not, Joe is a professor of consulting at Cardiff University and the advisor to consulting and tech leaders who want to scale their firms, add value and achieve their exit goals. Having worked with hundreds of clients during his years in consulting, Joe has an incredible amount of knowledge and insight to share, and I'm sure a fair few stories to tell, and we're delighted that he's able to join us for this episode of Brand and Deliver. So Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. So let's get started. As a leading authority on the growth and sale of boutique and small consulting firms, your expertise, experience and knowledge of this space is wide ranging from growth strategies to leadership coaching. But today we want to focus on one aspect of it, marketing and the role it plays in successfully growing a consultancy. So I'd like to kick off there. In your opinion, what role does marketing play? And how important is it when it comes to growing a firm? Okay, so thank you. Good question. General question, but it's a good start off. So, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a leading question as well. So I'm going to say, yes, of course, very important. We can't spend enough money on marketing, but it's not always the type of marketing that people think of because people typically think of digital marketing, you know, SEO, email campaigns, podcasts, newsletters, whatever. And don't get me wrong, those do have their place. But there's another side of marketing, which is equally as important, but not always talked about, which is working out what your consultancy should be about, talking to your clients about what they think about you, looking at your competitors and where you sit in comparison to your competitors. So, And then there's another form of marketing, which is the more traditional marketing that I think we're going to move on to later. So my focus is on seeing things from a buyer's perspective, and a buyer is interested in profitable growth. EBITDA, keeping your costs down, repeat clients, and all the rest of it. Marketing can help you fill the top of the funnel in terms of, you know, sort of outbound marketing, et cetera. But it can also enable you, you know, if you're talking about competitor analysis and market analysis, it can also allow you to offer more um, better positioned services, a better defined value proposition. And those things allow you to increase the top line as well as the bottom line. And would you say that that is a challenge that a lot of firms that you work with have? Do they have that niche, that proposition, those service offerings defined? Or is that something that you start with when you're talking to firms about marketing and growth? Is that something that is a, if you don't have this, you start here? So my area of advisory is typically firms between 20 and 120 employees. I would say that A third of firms, maybe not even that, maybe a quarter of firms that I um, encounter at the first stage don't have a clear value proposition. They're perhaps offering too many services. Perhaps they're competing in a market that is declining. And perhaps they have never had their clients feed back to them about what they really like about the firm and then what their value proposition should be. So there's always the the strategic question. which is, are you doing the right things? In some ways, there's no point investing a whole pile of cash into content creation and distribution if you're not confident that what you're selling is the right thing. And sometimes with some relatively small, it doesn't mean you need to necessarily offer different services. Sometimes it's about describing your services in different ways. So I would say the the majority of smaller firms haven't got that right yet. On the more digital side of marketing, it's not really until firms get to the 50-person size that many of them feel confident about investing significantly in marketing beyond having a web page and you know a few, a few blogs that no one reads and putting a few things out on LinkedIn. I guess that the the risk there is that, and you guys would know this because they're not your main competitors, but they do erode the market somewhat. There's a lot of dodgy charlatans out there offering, you know, strategic marketing services and growth services. And in effect, all they're doing is building a funnel for your firm. And that's a waste of money as far as I can see it. 
And of firms that are at that, as you say, you mentioned there that when firms get to that sort of 50 size, that's when they start to think we need to invest in that digital marketing side of it or marketing side of it a little more seriously and professionalize that that function. Why is that the tipping point? Is it a case of they've grown to a point and want to accelerate or they are grown to a point where they feel like they need to professionalize all functions within their business to kind of build that sort of robustness, I suppose? Yeah, I, I guess there's a few things. Number one, once you get to that size, it's hard to get beyond 30 people. And don't get me wrong, I've seen much larger firms not have this capability. But it's typically hard to get beyond 30 people and not know what you're about. And so this is really the shift that a lot of firms make from the growth phase to the scale phase. And the, the growth phase, which can can go up to 50 people, but typically is dealt with by the time they're at 30 people, you're really working out what you should be about. You know, what, what are the growth markets? Where can you charge a lot of money? What services are more likely to, to grow? Once you've worked out what you're about, you know what levers to pull in order to scale your business, which is why at that phase, some companies go to private equity so they can get the money to invest in the right levers. One of those levers is marketing. So you might have experimented with a few things and it, it may not have worked. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is that when, when you're kind of growing to, say, 20 people, it is difficult. It's always a struggle. But it's not that difficult if you've got a nice product or some nice services. But once you get to 30 to 50, you're starting to compete with a different group. You've got to feed the beast. There's got to be that consistent pipeline and machine that because now you've got a whole load of people who are going to be made redundant if you don't do the sales job right. And it's at this stage that the founders network, perhaps, can't feed the beast or the, perhaps one or two people in the firm can't feed the beast. And so typically at this stage, firms are starting to get very serious about, well, where's the pipeline going to come from next year? And it's then that they do a few things. Some of them is, you know, starting to get juniors to sell a bit more. Um, when I say juniors, I mean anyone other than, than the partners. Training up the partners in selling more, but also looking at, at marketing and what it can offer. And do you find when firms and, and founders reach that point that, do they typically try and in-house a lot of that stuff first and then fail or don't see the success that they want and then look for external suppliers? Or is it a case of actually they know that they, those skill sets aren't within their business and actually to do this properly, they want to look outside of that and, and kind of bring in experts externally to support? Or is there no commonality there? There's a common pattern which accounts for over 50% of, of at least the 200-odd clients I've had over the last five years or so. And that is that initially, they will nominate a partner or some partners to do some LinkedIn stuff and potentially even write some case studies or a blog if they were that way inclined. Then that may or may not work as it typically it doesn't work as well as it should because often that value proposition isn't clear. Something that a lot of founders do is uh, around this stage is to do a rebrand in effect. So you get the clients in to talk about what they like and you work out your value proposition and how that relates to the services you sell. And the consequence of having a decent value proposition is that there's certain themes and messages that come out of that. And then you think, well, what do we do with these themes? Do we really want a partner who could potentially be bringing in 200,000, 300,000 pounds worth, spending a few hours, you know, writing out these messages? Well, the answer is obviously not. So typically what they'll do then is give them to juniors to finish with variable experience and, you know, outcomes. It may, it may not work that well. And then they'll typically look for a marketing person to bring in-house and then the routes diverge. So either you build that in-house competence of good marketing people that can do the distribution and to some extent the creation of copy or you have one person or two people in-house and then you outsource the rest to a company like Create Engage. When you're talking about that value proposition, that thing that's really key for creating the I don't know, I suppose the brand to to jump off your marketing with. Do you have like a silver bullet question that you find helps people to find that value proposition or is it more of a trial and error? So my, my silver bullet question is why would people buy from you rather than the competition? 
But one of my clients actually said another one, which I thought was quite nice, which was if you were in the pub or a cafe and you heard someone talking about your company, this was um, Assad who owns Phase 3, you heard someone talking about your company, what would be the best thing they could say about your firm? And I quite like the more emotional engagement with that. I typically run a workshop that is half a day to a day. And the inputs into that will be, you know, what the people inside the firm say, what the services look like, what the strategy is, but also what the what the clients, most importantly, what the clients think of the firm. And it, it's really astounding how many consultancies, they might have lots of board advisor, but one of them isn't a client or hasn't been a client. And they don't get their clients in when they're developing services or building a brand or getting their value proposition. I think that's a massive gap for a lot, a lot of firms. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Do you find that there's, when you go through that process, that actually what a founder thinks about their own business is different to what clients value from their business? And actually is... Yeah, 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 yeah. So every time I have got clients in, or sometimes I'll go and interview clients, or sometimes you bring them into the workshop or you do a survey or whatever. But yeah, it's it's always a surprise. And very often people will say, oh, you know, I thought that, you know, our secret source was the database that we have or the tool that we've developed. And it's not. It's something completely different. And they've been leaving money on the table because they haven't been pushing that other thing. That's really interesting because I I do think as well, it's having worked with a lot of firms, consulting firms over the last four, three or four years, actually it takes some time to really dig into what is it that makes each individual one unique. Because on the surface, a lot of offerings and services are similar you know transformation change you know they are broad terms and actually it's really interesting and it's a part of the process that i really enjoy when we're building strategies for clients is actually helping the people who live and breathe that business every day actually take a step back and get excited about their own business again and i, th- I find that a really enjoyable part of the the strategy building process Yes, yes. And, and, you know, one thing that's missing that often marketing firms don't pick up on, there's no reason why they should, other than it being a good thing to do, is thinking about what the buyer of that firm, and I don't mean the clients, I mean the eventual, typically, you know, half of these firms get sold to, or, you know, growing firms get sold to strategic buyers or private equity, part of a roll-up, whatever. You've got to think, if you're too diverse in your in your services, when a buyer is buying a firm, especially a strategic buyer, they want a niche. And that doesn't mean that you can't have lots of services, but those services have got to have cross-sell and they've got to be related and strategically aligned and all the rest of it. But if you are too diverse, the buyer is typically going to buy your core thing that fits into their jigsaw puzzle and they'll get rid of the rest. And when you're growing, you want to be known for X. You don't want to be known for X, Y, and Z unless you're really a large firm. And so that that's a really important thing to consider when you're growing a firm. So when you're talking about value proposition and uniqueness, it isn't necessarily that the services need to be unique, they don't. But there's not just what you do, there's how you do it, your methods, there's where you do it, you know, what's your target, there's who you sell to in, in terms of the individuals, but there's also how you explain that to the audience. You know, what are you? What's your culture like? What are your people like? And all the rest of it. So you don't have to be unique on all of those, but you do need to be able to communicate. You know, why you? Why should they buy from you and not from someone else? And that also means that you're saying no to some buyers, or you're eliminating yourself from buyers because you don't want to be vanilla as a boutique. If you go vanilla, you're going to be competing with PwC or one of the big players, and you don't want to be doing that. And so you want to have a, a, a flavor so that some people like you and some people don't. And But those that like you are going to be a lot more likely to buy from you than if you're vanilla. I'm very intrigued to know how, or if you've ever come across a situation where somebody had decided they weren't going to be vanilla and they picked a flavor, but they sort of accidentally picked one that, that nobody likes. And, and how did they pivot from that situation? Generally not. That's good. <laughs> so there's... Don't get me wrong, there's bad marketing or there's no marketing. So people have fallen into a presentation of what they're like. And so that is very often, oh, we're talking about ourselves all the time. We're not talking about the clients or, you know, 
we're just we've got a really technical, boring, descriptive website, and we've never thought about branding. So I'm excluding those people that have never done this. But the markets out there are typically very big. There's very few consultancies that don't have a boutique consultancies that don't have a potential market of more than 500 buyers, and that's enough to get you to 100 million. So. If you say there's a potential market of 500 buyers, we might only, you know, be attractive to, you know, 100 of those, but that's still a hell of a lot of buyers, and that's obviously something you need to think about as well when you're when you're setting up your firm. How many potential buyers there are for your business? Do you ever find when you're going through that exercise, you found there's a reluctance to niche down, if that's the right term, because with a fear of drying up the pipeline, and actually it's that how much of a challenge is that that you have to like a mental challenge to an outlook challenge to overcome to say, actually, the long-term benefit is going to be much greater if you niche as opposed to staying vanilla. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. So uh, I had this conversation yesterday with a uh, European firm that uh, was offering way too many services. And I don't mind a lot of services if it's grown organically and strategically. But what you get, you get this kind of hourglass thing. And so if you imagine the top of the hourglass, when you start a firm, you're so worried about paying the mortgage that you'll do anything that comes through the door. So if you're a marketing firm, you'll do a bit of SEO and then you'll do a bit of um, podcast stuff and you'll do a bit of website stuff. And that's fine because you're experimenting, you're working out what works for you. But over time, you need to start saying no to some of this stuff as you accumulate expertise in a specific area, but also you understand that the market is growing, you can make good money out of this and it's potentially a scalable service. Then what you do, you get down to that niche eventually and you go, right, this is what I'm focusing on. This is my brand. This is my value proposition. And then you're at the middle of the hourglass and then you start to develop strategically. So what you're doing then, instead of having lots of different colored services that don't relate to each other, you're then building out strategically saying, well, let's do the same service in a new market or let's develop another service. And this is much more common. Let's develop another service that people are much more likely to buy from the basis of the first service. So there's lots of cross-sell. And so I, I get a lot of people. So the message here is that if you're in the top part of that hourglass, you've got to get smaller in terms before you can get bigger. So you need to develop that expertise, develop the brand, develop the value proposition. And if you're doing three relatively unrelated things where there's no cross-sell, it's really hard to do that. I think that's really interesting. And I, I like the analogy of the, the hourglass on that as well. And I think we as marketers will definitely say that marketing plays a part in the second part of that, the hourglass, when you start with, so you've got your niche sorted, you've got your value proposition, and and then you want to kind of take that, you accelerate that growth based on those foundations. Marketing obviously plays a role within that. I'm interested to see, you know, let's take, let's kind of fast forward and, and hypothetically, you're working with an organization who are at that point. How do you recommend they take their, let's assume they haven't got a proven track record in marketing or have no existing marketing function. How do you advise them to incorporate that into their growth strategy? Is there a, a, a kind of starting point that you always recommend a quick win or is it, is it bespoke an individual to the, to the firm? So do you mean in terms of, you know, what are the first steps in, in the marketing journey or is it more on the operational side? How do we how do we measure this, and what, what's the common experience of firms? First steps on the, in the marketing journey. Okay, so so what you'll typically get in a firm is that the founders produce, you know, and I'm talking about firms up to say 70, 80 employees. You'll get a situation where the founders generate three quarters of the revenue. Obviously, that's no use to a buyer because as soon as the founders walk out the door, get hit by a car. They don't have an asset. And so that's not a good position to be sold from. So what you'll typically do is get people to start developing the capability of sales in, in partners. And they do the sort of trusted advisor stuff, long-time relationships. But it's a lot easier for them to do that if they've got good marketing. But secondly, when it comes to marketing, my question is how many of these leads are generated from marketing as opposed to the founders and the partner group? And it's really there that marketing is starting to or should be proving its worth. and But the trouble is, is that marketing is an experiment. It's not a science. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of number crunching involved and in all the rest of it. That's really measuring what works rather than the science of working out what works. And that requires patience. It requires potentially losing money on experiments. You need to learn quickly from what doesn't work. 
But, but the trouble is, and you, you'll know this better than I do, that typically if you decide to start a YouTube channel or you start to develop white papers or you start to do a podcast or whatever you do, it takes six months to a year for that thing to even start showing traction. And a lot of founders don't necessarily have the money or inclination to wait that long. That's absolutely a challenge that we are familiar with. And that expectation management of it's not a tap that you turn on, it's foundations that you build and you test and learn and iterate along the way. And in 12, 18 months, you know, all being well, you'll have a very focused marketing strategy that is delivering the results that you want it to. And obviously that differs for every firm. But that expectation management and helping founders come on that journey with you is a challenge. Yeah. And it, it can be, I mean, I feel for you guys because, you know, sometimes you're having that conversation look, and saying, look, we've tried this and it's been a year and you've had a 7% uptick in, in listeners to your podcast, but has it, has it generated any more sales? And if the answer is no, then you've got to go back and have that conversation saying, hey, why don't we try SEO? <laughs> and that's that's really tough. So it's, you know, I, I, I feel for you guys in some ways. It's, it's not an easy, but to do it well, you know, the, the key thing is, and you'll know this again, the key thing is consistent generation and distribution of quality content. And it's the quality that's key here. There's no point, and I'm, I know you guys do this, I'm not a big fan of marketing agencies coming up with the idea and executing blogs and all the rest of it from scratch. I think, you know, if I think the partners should really be the ones generating the idea and the priorities and all the rest of it, and then marketing should be helping them execute that and then taking, taking on the burden that marketing is great at, which is around distribution and measurement of some of that. I agree. I think that is an approach we find typically with clients. When we have clients who buy into that approach, that's when it works really well because actually it's playing to strengths in terms of leveraging the knowledge, the experience, the expertise of the partners and founders within that organization. But then our, I say us, but marketing in general, the expertise around how can we amplify and distribute that content and do so in a way that looks premium as well because i think actually it's the perception marketing plays a large role in the perception of a brand of course and actually when done well externally can a, a phone can be perceived as much larger than they actually are if they've got an efficient marketing function and, and like you say that con constant content distribution there's feedback we've had from clients before that once they've had if they've started conversations with prospective clients and actually when they understand more about the organization they've had the feedback that oh we you know, we, we thought you were much larger than you are, not in a negative way, but from your, you know, marketing output, we thought you were much larger. And I think that's great because that's actually, it elevates those sort of boutique and smaller firms to matching the output of firms that are much bigger from a marketing perspective. Yeah. And, you know, the, the internet is a horrible shouting match. And, you know, what you don't want to be doing is standing beside the road shouting at cars as they drive past very, you know, quickly. You want to have the lay-by that they can pull into, or you want to be distinctive in your signage, or you want to have a message that's important and resonates mm. so that people slow down, you know, they stop the scroll, perhaps, and listen. And, and it, it's not an easy thing to achieve. Um, and there's, as you all know, and I'm sure you clear up the mess from a lot of these people, there's a lot of bad marketeers out there who, you know, they're charging vast amounts of cash they don't really get that messaging bit right, which in my view is, is crucial. And it's why I'm a massive fan of thought leadership in consultancies. I think as well, it's, it comes down to, and it's a conversation I like to have earlier on with clients rather than later, is what does success look like from a marketing perspective? Because it's very easy to get 100, 150, 200 engagements on a LinkedIn post if you put agree question mark at the end of the post, because it seems to be... What everyone does, but actually, are those 150, 200 people of those, how many are actually going to be prospective clients? Potentially zero. I'd much rather, as you say, you know, create the lay by for someone to pull into. I'm taking that as a, you know, a gated ebook or something that someone can download and, and kind of start a conversation with. That's much more valuable. And I think understanding what success looks like to clients and, and also educating clients on what success should look like, I think is a really big part of that journey as well from a marketing perspective. Yeah, definitely agreed. 
So we've spoken a lot about how you advise firms and what founders need to consider when it comes to marketing their consultancies. And I really liked what you just said then about thought leadership and how key that is. And I think that's really obvious in the way that you've built your personal brand as well. And I know you're not a big fan of that term, but you know, you released a book, you've launched a podcast, you've got 20,000 followers on LinkedIn. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, you have an amazing personal brand. (laughs) Thank you. That's 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 very kind of you. Um, you're right. I I never used to. I used to loathe the phrase per, personal brand. I, but what happens is that your brand develops when you give people value. And you know, I have never thought about my brand at all, which probably accounts for some of the swearing and you know rough rough faces you see on <laughs> on on my LinkedIn posts. But I do think very, very deeply about providing value. And in in some ways, my move to academia from corporate consultancy was me saying, okay, I want to give value to students. And then with my research and some of that small firms owned by friends that I was helping over a few years, I wanted to share because there's so much bad advice about growing and exiting your firm done by, you know, very often there'll be, you know, this spotty 20-year-old in a cheap suit who's who's never been anywhere near a growing a firm or anything like that. So I really wanted to share on the basis of, of providing value to people. And what has come as a consequence of that is, you know, quite a loyal following. I've got my boutique leaders club and people seem to, you know, enjoy it. But I'm very keen on firstly sharing the value I have, but also enabling value between business owners so that they can help each other. Is that something you would recommend to other, I appreciate it's different, but the success that you've had from that, as you said, organically in that sense of, I imagine there has been, it's helped grow your business and your your brand, you know, and that's supported and brought in a lot of leads from it. Is that something that you actively would recommend when you're talking to founders around marketing strategies and I think from a well I'll I'll pause there because there's two questions in there but is that something you actively recommend yes and not just for founders but also for partners I think it's increasingly important that a partner becomes to use a phrase a visible expert you know they're all experts maybe they're not as niche down as a partner should be but they're not visible and so partners almost need to start acting like the old traditional partners that they they run their own practice and that they become the visible expert in a specific area. So I'm very keen on that happening. Um, the, the challenge there is with founders is that you can go too far. So if you become the face of the company, you become the voice of the company, you run the podcast and all the rest of it, the buyer's going to look at that and think, well, they're generating all the, all the leads. So I would rather the partner team were doing it than the founder was doing it. And that was exactly the second half of my question, which was from a buyer's perspective, I was, I was going to say, I imagine actually having more faces to, you know, projected externally and seen as experts is a positive because it's not all concentrated through a single founder. Yeah. And there are exceptions, but your average successful consultancy owner, founder, that has grown the firm to say 50 people isn't usually going to be a shy retiring violet that doesn't like the limelight a bit a bit because they've managed to sell to get to that to, the, to that size and so you know the temptation to you know set up your own podcast and you know do it's very strong but sometimes it just concentrates this view the founder is all important to the firm both for buyers of the firm potential buyers of the firm but also from the rest of the partner group who perhaps you know, a shine away from doing what they should be doing because you've got this dominant owner in charge. Absolutely. And it's something I find really interesting when we're working with our clients as well, actually, in terms of there's always or often an initial reluctance to put yourself out there from a marketing perspective. And it's amazing how many people actually really enjoy it once they're told they should or they could or the benefits of, and then they're away and it's brilliant to see and it's something that makes our lives very easy when you've got people that are very engaged in content creation yeah but and there is a but here it's no excuse for not picking up the phone so a lot of a lot of partners will say oh you know i've been very good on the business development side i've i've written this blog and i've done these linkedin posts and all the rest of it 
And I say, well, how many times did you pick up the phone today to an ex-client? I say, well, I've been, you know, I've been busy doing that thought leadership stuff. And it, it, it's not, it's not either or, it's got to be both. And the, the easiest way to get, to get sales, number one, to ask for referrals, and number two, to expand the business um, that you're already doing with clients. And so if you're not doing that for your bread and butter, there's no point trying to become a visible expert because you're too scared to pick up the phone and sell. And unfortunately, that is true of, of you know, even some partners. That really speaks to a lot of the conversations I think we have with clients quite regularly is around those touch points of, you know, how do you know when marketing is proving that return on investment? And if you don't have those multiple touch points, it's not just you just do one thing. You can't just do LinkedIn. You can't just do blogs. You can't just do the website. It has to be multiple touch points. And I think that what you just said then really speaks to that as well. So this is just my experience. You're way more expert than I am at marketing. My view is that that's true of larger firms. So once you get to 100, 200, so my personal advice to smaller firms is do one thing and stick at it until you know whether it works or not. Because if you're, let's let's imagine you're a 50 person firm, you've got a founder, you've got three partners, and you've kind of forked out for half a marketing person or, you know, maybe an agency that's working with you. If you, do a blog and YouTube and a podcast and SEO and thought leadership, you're going to do all of them badly, unless you're chucking loads of money. Because the partners just don't have time to push that. So, And also the messages get mixed up. So if you get a sale, someone might say, oh, you know, I've listened to your podcast and I've done that and I've listened to your YouTube and I've read your articles. But you don't really know what's working. So with smaller firms, I always say stick to one thing until you know whether it works or whether it doesn't. If it works, we keep it, measure it, improve it. And then once that's established, then we say, okay, how can we reuse and improve this? So, you know, a, a, pod, a webinar might lead to, you know, various videos, which could be converted into a podcast, a blog, which then you might do SEO on, then you might cut up a bit for LinkedIn. The key thing is for me is, patience, you know, working out whether it works or not. I think you mentioned a couple of times there, being patient and understanding if it works. And I'm quite interested to dig into the, if it works or find out, you know, until you know it works, which to me speaks to measurement and measures of success. How do you help founders under or businesses firms understand what is and isn't working from a marketing perspective? I mean, you engage the input KPIs and the output KPIs and the input KPIs, are all the boring stuff that, you know, how many views, how many likes, how many shares, how many listeners, how many visits and all the rest of it, the stuff, you know, most marketing firms know, know very, very well. The, the tricky one is the output. As you said earlier, there's no point having a million likes if nobody buys your service. So when the partners are having that conversation, when you're moving from sort of a prospect to a lead, ideally then to a client, I guess there's two things. There's the quantitative feedback in terms of how did you find us, first of all? How did you engage with us? I mean, it's probably going to be a recommendation, but if it's not, then, you know, what did you engage with us from? And sometimes, you know, you know this, sometimes you can get a bit sophisticated with your marketing and you can actually follow someone, someone's journey, but some most of the time you can't because people drop off or they have different identities when they come online. But then there's qualitative feedback, which is the partners saying, oh, that ebook that you helped us produce, I'm using that, you know, with clients and they love it and all the rest of it. And just because it's qualitative doesn't mean it's not important. So it's just capturing some of that stuff. And that means that, and this is another one of my, my bugbears, that means there needs to be a really close relationship between partners and marketing. Marketing should serve the needs of partners. And advise and help and all the rest of it shouldn't be the tail wagging the dog, which I've seen many times where there's a good marketing department who are very, very bright and able, and they've gone off producing content that the partners know nothing about and haven't asked for, and is probably of no use to them. And very often that content is too generic, or it's got the wrong tone, or it's not speaking to the right clients. So, you know, I'm a big fan of encouraging partners and the marketing team to get as close as possible. I think that's a really good point. And I think I mentioned earlier around playing to strengths and you mentioned as well around 
the webinar approach and repurposing that into videos and blogs and and leveraging that content for different channels and in different formats. And I think that's a really interesting way of doing things as well, because actually a partner's time is busy and the marketing part of part of that is is small. But actually the best use of that time is to potentially create a, a webinar that then can be repurposed by the marketing team. And you you you, know, you then know and have the confidence that whatever goes out has come from the partner. It's just been repurposed through the marketing team. And I think that's a really, a really sensible approach. And I think what that kind of leads on to my next question, which was I really agree with the however you want to phrase it, the sort of do one thing, do it well, walk before you can run, you know, one of those things. Is there a place that you typically recommend that firms start? What is that one thing that they should do first? And is there a single thing or does it differ by by firm? Yeah, sure. Okay. So it doesn't differ by firm. It differs by type of firm. So I'm, I'm a big fan of David Meister's categorization of professional service firms into brains experience he, he called it gray beards i think he called it but times have changed thank god and process-based firms and those types of firms have different marketing needs and i won't break them down here but you know what a brains firm you're solving unique problems for a client with very bright people and they're unique problems for you as well then your marketing is going to be very different to someone that, you know, in effect advises on outsourced processes or, you know, um, managed services or something. So I guess that's the first thing. I'm a big fan of thought leadership, and I mean good, high-quality, original research thought leadership that can be reused and reused and reused. It's expensive. It involves, and it's a good thing and a bad thing, but you can also involve clients in you know, you can do surveys or you could have a, a senior client perhaps acting as a steering committee for the piece, or you could do it jointly with a client and then go to a conference and give the paper or submit it for an award or something. But I think with most, not all, but I think with most consultancy firms, it pays to develop really nice, accessible thought leadership that speaks to the concerns of your clients. It has lots of benefits from the quality of your brand through to, you know, developing lead magnets, good marketing material, but also most of all, showing that you really understand the problem better than your clients do. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I suppose talking around that, starting on doing fewer things well and and focusing on what works for your firm. Obviously in marketing and particularly in digital marketing, there are trends and channels and platforms that that come and go not all of which are suitable for special services marketing at all one i think that is really interesting i know one is that, that you're keen on is is ai and i think it's a it's a topic of conversation that is everywhere at the moment and i know you have experience of using it in many different forms do you see that there's a benefit in professional services marketing embracing ai and if so what is it content creation is it other Sure. Okay. So firstly, a little bit about my background here. So for the last two years, I've kind of, I love shiny new things. And the latest one was AI. I got into it about two years ago um, through a friend. I've implemented a couple of AI solutions, believe it or not. Uh, I, I, I can't code, but for, for consultancies, I've built a few AI bots for my students and for my clients, which I've, I've done free of charge, really. And as you say, there are, there are always trends and there are waves, and there's a huge amount of hype about AI at the moment. But the reason I'm spent, I'm writing a book on it at the moment, AI in professional service firms. The reason I'm putting that effort in is because I do genuinely believe it's transformative. You know, it, in effect, we're we're one year in from GPT three being launched and generative AI becoming popular. Don't get me wrong; for the last well, 60 years, AI has been there in some form, but the processing power and the cost has been um, too much for it to be generative. Now we're seeing generative AI, it's obviously a threat and an opportunity for a lot of professions, and one of those is marketing. So there are hundreds of generative AI apps now, and I'm guessing you guys are being bombarded by people that want to sell you sell you things. But the key thing from my perspective is we are one year in. And if firms, including marketing firms, 
aren't getting ahead of this, then in three years' time, they're going to die in the face of the firms that are ahead of this because there are huge opportunities to, and it's not just content creation, it's ideation. So, you know, I, I did so, I, I, I used it the other day. Okay, so when I take on a new client, I give them a 300 question questionnaire. It's a huge piece of work for them, but it's really worth it because it enables me to understand the firm and it makes them realize that, you know, what some of their weaknesses are. After I've received that, I analyze it and then I use that as a basis to interview the owners. Off of that, I can then produce uh, what I see as a useful prioritized plan of action. And then we have a conversation about my ideas. What I did for the first time this week was I did it manually the way I've always done it. And then I did it through AI. So in effect, I gave it the transcript of the interview and I gave it the uh, the answers to the questions. I anonymized the document before I did it. And it produced pretty much the same prioritized plan that I had done. Now, I have been studying, teaching, writing about and practicing consultancy for 25, if not more, years. And that was kind of scary. Now, it's not magic. It's predictive. It's got limitations. It hallucinates and all the rest of it. But this is after year one. So ideation. It can come up with ideas and it can prioritize really well. And that's in terms of I've used it for value proposition work as well. I've obviously done it myself. And then I've generated a whole load of value proposition statements for a client. The ones they liked most were the AI ones, most of them. And when I told them it came from AI, their jaws dropped. And these aren't these aren't sort of naive, you know, these aren't people from the from the valleys or something. They're, you know, bright experienced, tech-savvy people. So it's ideation, first of all. What what ideas? Uh, number two, analysis of the market and analysis for competitors. I was looking at a, a nice little app at the moment, which is around competitor analysis, and it does it on the basis of the competitors' websites, their SEO, their output from um, LinkedIn, any marketing stuff they produce and all the rest of it. But it has the capability not just to scrape that data, but to analyze it and present it back as well. Value proposition creation, identification of themes, and then you get to the content production side of things. So don't get me wrong, at the moment, I wouldn't use it for content production. I've tried. I've tried training a bot on my own material to write stuff for me. I don't feel it captures my voice. And for me, my voice is everything. The only marketing in inverted commas I do is on LinkedIn. And so if if any of my followers get a feeling that that isn't authentic, then there's going to be a problem. However, I have no doubt at all that in two years, it's going to be capable of my voice, literally. So me, avatar, my voice, my type of thinking, and the type of words I was used. The game we're in then is something very, very different and something very scary in, in my view. So You've got the content creation, which I don't think is there, but then you've got the reuse. So as you say, you might have a webinar and there's AI now that can cut up the webinar in roughly the right places. It can transcribe the webinar um, perfectly and then turn it into a blog. The blog might not be 100%, but it's going to be 70% of the way there. Then you've got that, that you could take parts of those blogs and animate a person to speak some of the words for you. Or you could turn it into a video and it can do that automatically. Again, it's not 100% of the way there. It's kind of 70% of the way there, but it's not going to be long before it's 80 to 90% of the way there. And then finally, you've got distribution and measurement of the distribution. And you, you know as well as I do, there's many tools out there that will allow you to automate, allow you to uh, measure and improve automatically the distribution of content in a much more targeted way. So, for example, rather than the standard CRM approach, which is, dear Joe, I hope all is well at joeomani.com and that side of things, what you are getting is writing that is in a style of my personality. So, for example, I tested something a few days ago that if I write a LinkedIn post, if I write a LinkedIn message or an email message, the AI will correct me based on the personality of that person. Now, 
that was interesting. I haven't subscribed to it. And the reason for it is, is that the big insight to, for me was that despite everything I tell my clients, I still write in my own voice. I don't amend things for other people. So there's all these different stages and AI is at the moment very task focused. So it can do each one of those things, sometimes brilliantly, sometimes pretty badly. Pretty bad stuff will probably get a bit better. What it can't do at the moment is link those tasks up very well. There's this new agent stuff where you've got a series of different AI bots talking to each other and helping each other. Those are a bit better at doing process stuff, but it's still some way off of saying, instead of having to do everything at a task level, just saying, you know, do everything you can to get me that client. Or even just, you know, find out which clients I want and then contact them in a way that's going to get their attention best. So we're we're years away from that. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but there is huge amounts of potential. So I've realized I've talked for a long, a long time on that, but I'm quite passionate and interested in it. It's fascinating. And I think actually there's a lot of talk of AI out there at the moment, but it's really interesting to hear from you because you've tested it, incorporated it into what you do and are seeing the benefits and the pitfalls of doing so. And I think actually, I I agree with you completely. I think it's a case of embrace it and embrace it in the right way now or everyone else is going to in the next few years may look slightly tricky if you don't. But and I think that embrace it in the right way is important because I, I think there's a lot of the fear of the unknown is stopping people and firms doing that. But actually, there is a lot of tangible benefit from from taking the leap. I think we're going to see a lot of marketing firms experimenting very heavily over the next two years with automated as much as possible and then provide an experienced marketeer to to give an overview of it or to sit alongside it. Eventually, that may be, why do we need a senior marketer at all? I don't know. I think management consultants are a little bit better off because organizations as entities, if you want to be philosophical about it, are much more complex than most other entities, even compared to a body. You know, if you're talking about doctors, organizations are more complex, they're less predictable, they're more open. And so I think management consultancy as a profession is probably going to be one of the last professions to be disrupted by AI. But I don't have any doubt that it will be disrupted to some extent and already is 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 being done so. And AI aside, if we take the next 12 months, 18 months, you can choose the timescale. What does that look like for professional services firms and particularly the marketing of professional services firms? So what other challenges and opportunities do heads of marketing, founders that or partners that are, that are looking after marketing need to be aware of and what might they encounter? Okay, so I mean, there's different timescales to different parts of this answer. One of them is that 2023 has been horrible for most boutique consulting firms. And the, the faster moving ones will have changed their messaging. So they'd be focusing more on cost savings, efficiency, and phrases like that, rather than the whole discretionary spend messaging that, that really won't be working at the moment. I'd say three quarters of the boutique consulting market have struggled this year. Next year, I believe it's going to be, I believe it's going to pick up. And I only say that because of my my knowledge historically of what happens to consulting revenues over the last 150 years. Very rare to find a, a, a dip that lasts for more than, you know, a year. Even, you know, 2021, 2008, we've had a lot of recessions over the last few years. Only lasted for a year. So I'm really hoping the consulting industry picks up. So I think there's one thing around messaging. There's the whole AI thing that you know we've talked to death about. There's the, the big ongoing trends for the consulting industry. So number one, there has been an explosion of boutique professional service firms, partly because of the collapsing cost of enabling services, IT, marketing, uh, building websites and that type of stuff. But also partly because clients are getting pissed off with the big four and McKinsey, Bain and Boston charging them two grand an hour a load of MBA students who are are doing a cut and paste job. The other big trend is that consulting is getting more and more competitive whilst clients are getting more and more savvy. So what you've seen over the last 10 years is kind of a moving apart of two poles of consultancy, high value, high cost, and more commodified, low value, low cost services. 
And I can only see that as increasing. So positioning yourself in high value, getting good training programs for your people, really building in the development, looking at how technology can help you. I think there's opportunities there, but there's also dangers for firms that are in that sort of low cost commodified space, which I think is only going to get worse and worse. And that means that consulting firms need to continually reinvent themselves. Not continually. Once every five to seven years, you need to have a really, really deep think. Are we still selling business process re-engineering to a market that doesn't exist anymore? Are we we using the phrase total quality management and lean when everyone has moved on to agile and AI or whatever? So there is this thing around reinvention as well. I could go on, but I won't. I think one final question from me. If a firm or founder of a firm is listening to this podcast and are looking to accelerate their marketing in 2024, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them? So founders aren't interested in accelerating their marketing, obviously, that they're interested in accelerating their sales. And they might come to the realization that marketing could be useful for, for doing this. I think marketing, to some extent, is like management consultancy, in that if you build a team of internal management consultants, they can be very good for a while, but eventually they don't have that exposure to lots of different clients and lots of different ideas that allows them to stay ahead of the game. So one thing, and I'm not just saying this because you know you, you guys are here, but I do think it's important to engage with experts who know what the most exciting and useful stuff is in marketing. And that doesn't mean that you need to outsource your whole marketing function on, you know, 10, 15 grand a month. But it does mean that you need, you know, depending on your size and depending on what type of firm you are, you need to know where the biggest bang for your buck is going to be. And it's really marketing professionals that are going to do that. Now, don't get me wrong, marketing professionals and as with any professional service provider, is always going to want you to spend a bit more money rather than less money. But they'll also know that if you go to them with a budget of three grand a month, that in order to maximise the impact of that, these are the likely things that are going to work, or at least to start experimenting with. The worst thing you can do is this kind of scattergun approach where we, we you know, we, we, we try everything for two months and expect it to work. And, you know, giving partners responsibility for... Uh, writing blogs and distributing content and all the rest of it is, isn't the way to go. So I realized that budgets can be a concern, especially if you're trying to maximize your EBITDA. But you've got to think in the long term, what you want to be doing is building that marketing engine that hands over seamlessly and supports your sales engine. So I'm all about intellectual property, building the systems and processes that will allow you to grow the asset of the firm and two of those processes are your marketing machine and your sales machine, and they need to be seamless in terms of supporting each other. A brilliant place to finish. Thank you very much. Well, Joe, thanks very much for that. Really, really enjoyed the conversation and hope you did too. Thanks to both of you. Yeah, re- really interesting. It's nice to have a, a bit of space to think about the marketing side because, you know, in, in terms of what I spend, you know, it, it probably accounts for a quarter, if not a third of conversations that I'm having with with owners. So it's a useful, yeah, really useful to take a bit of time out and think about it. Thank you. Pleasure.